Hello, hello. It's me. I'm happy. Happy to have you here. It's a wonderful evening. It's a crisp one. It's November. It's November 15th. We're in the middle of the month. And to think... To think that this time next week we're going to be preparing for Thanksgiving. It's already Thanksgiving. Which means that there's only like four Fridays and until Christmas. When you put that into perspective, it's, uh, it's, it's all very quick. It really is. And I've been thinking about this time of year since this time last year. And I just love it. And uh, this is why I try to soak it up and, and have some fun with you here. Because this is really the, the bulk of how I enjoy the holidays now. Obviously, I celebrate with my family and we do things on weekends and wherever we can get a little bit seasonal enjoyment that happens but we, then we also have two concentrated hours every night that we can do any number of things to lift the uh the holiday decibel level a little bit more and tonight you know i think in the second half is going to be really interesting uh, or, or it's going to work toward that end in the first half uh, as you know, it is also Brandy Balls season, which means that Dr. Robin McCutcheon is coming back. We haven't had her on in months. I, I think she was on with us back in March. I forget what when it was, but she was on with us shortly after we were given some ridiculous job reports number, and she came on to just to like describe the difference between the U3 and the U6, uh, what's going on in the economy, and. Um, and uh, and a few other things. I'm I'm forgetting now what exactly we discussed, but it was um, something along those lines. She's back tonight, and she usually is around this time of year. And she's as you know, she is a professor of economics at Marshall University. And we are going to um, we're going to talk a little about recent news. Talk about the differences between capitalism and the free market. Are they interchangeable terms? Or is one a red herring? Or what's going on there? So I have that and I have other things I want to bring up. Um, and uh, and that's it. That's it. But after she departs, I want to finish this episode with a pretty lighthearted topic that is based on a thread I've been waiting to do just for a night like tonight in November when we're starting to get a little bit more grateful. We're thinking about Thanksgiving and the uh, the thread is called the greatest compliments you've ever received. I asked Robin what hers is, so she probably has hers all ready to go, but I've already read some of the things that you guys and gals have put into our thread. And I can't wait to read them. They're, they feel so great, and um, they're great to read, and I just love doing stuff like this. So that's what we have in the second half. Um, I have a couple of booking additions to tell you about. As you know, tomorrow is going to be a wonderful evening with George Alexopoulos in studio and Razor Fist on the phone. Matt will be here on Monday, on uh, on, on Friday. On Monday, I've got Sal Greco with a NYC update in the first half. Jim Lee is calling in in the second half. This is going to be a really interesting one there too because um, he's been doing deep dives into these ESG loans and the, the, the ESG loan debt bubble that is just growing out of control and about to burst and what's going on with that. So maybe a little bit of talk about uh, BlackRock and Larry Fink and all that on, on uh, Monday in the second half. 
Ganny Katz is coming back. She has a new book. Jay Gulinello, The Night Before Thanksgiving, and I have a bunch of uh, things to talk about with him. I have some hypotheticals to throw his way, and there's other things, too. We, st- we still have not had a real big parasite deep dive. And, um, and then after Thanksgiving, I'm hoping Tony Black feels good enough to come on. It, you know, it's, it's, it's year to year with Tony because I, I just want him to, I don't want to stress him out, but he seems to really love hanging out with us. So there, there's that. But now I have Rich Barris on November 27th. Brendan Dilly is coming on on November 29th. Barbara Yates, she's going to be wonderful. I met her at Jay Gulinello's health retreat, and she is an incredible woman. And she has done a lot of work in helping women go out there and negotiate on their behalf successfully in the business world. Um, she, uh, I love how how lemon-faced she gets about all of the, the you know, women's rights, this and that, and, and what uh, what feminism really, uh, you know, uh, stomps their feet and demands when she's actually spent a lifetime teaching women how to go out there and get what they want and actually be able to represent themselves and be a good agent for themselves in, uh, in the business world. That's going to be a wonderful evening. Um, I, I can't wait to talk to Barbara again. Now, here's another one. We're kicking off December. The December booking is kicked off with Ben Davidson. Space, Space Weather News, Suspicious Observers. Ben Davidson is coming on the show on December 6th. Mark Shaw, author, is coming back to the show after a few years. He's got a new book coming out. But we're going to be talking about the JFK assassination again since we're 60 years later. And on December 15th, as of right now, which is a month from tonight, Fleckus Friday returns. It's going to be a Fleckus Friday miracle, I think. I can't wait to talk to Fleckus again. So put that in your pipe and smoke it, ladies and gents. I'm excited. Some good stuff. Good stuff. Especially about Ben Davidson. Um, I've been trying to get um, been trying to get his attention for a long time. So this should be interesting. All right. Um, with that, with that, one more thing, and then we're off to start the show. Um, Dutch Sense. Here's some interesting updates from the Dutch Sense side of things. You might have seen this. You may not have, but here it is. Uh, Dutch Sense has said he has to walk away from his channel. Here are a few of the posts that he put up. Uh, this is, this is a, um, for those of you who don't know, Dutch is, for many years has been doing earthquake detection and predictions. Um, it's a really, really fascinating process there. It incorporates a lot of information about the tendencies of you know and the activity of volcanoes and uh fracking and it's it's been it's been real but uh, apparently he's taken off he said i can't upload videos i'm being shut down by law enforcement i won't be back for a long time unfortunately if ever i'm losing about ten thousand a month from this it sucks hard he went on to also say if you want to know why I'm shut down, you can contact the, the Department of Homeland Security and ask them, which is a pretty interesting statement to make. And then there is this one. 
I got the confirmation that I was looking, uh, what I was looking for in regards to my shutdown and their sources of it all. Now that I know it's happening at the behest of actual government entities and law enforcement is involved, I will bow out. I said I would stop if I got confirmation that it is government that's doing the shutdowns and that if it was private groups or jealous people shutting me down, I would keep going and fight on. Now that we know it is government and law enforcement, I will respect their wishes and leave. Consider this my last post in regards to anything which matters. I may still try to post music if that is allowed. So, uh, obviously, this this is pretty shocking news, especially with the claims that are being made around it. I always liked uh, peeking in on, on Dutch's streams and even watching reruns and all that. Every time that little earthquake bell rung, I'd be like, what, what, what's next? I don't know, there's something exciting about the whole thing, but also you learned a lot. Now, the one thing I could do is I could ask Jim Lee what he thinks about this on Tuesday, because I know that they have some history, although I don't know if that history is good, so I, I'd i be uh, hesitant to to start, you know, kick a bee's nest or, or whatever, but, you know, I, I want to make sure at least people are okay. But law enforcement, man, oh, man. All right, that's it for right now. Uh, we have Robin McCutcheon coming on, and I hope you enjoy the show. Don't go anywhere. What is up, guys? Mike Collins here from Wandering Wolf Productions at Easter Island, and you are watching, quite frankly. You let one ant stand up to us, then they all might stand up. Those puny little ants outnumber us a hundred to one. And if they ever figure that out, there goes our way of life. It's not about food. It's about keeping those ants in line. That's why we're going back. Does anybody else want to stay? Let's ride! always something happening what it is ain't exactly clear. And it's never gotten clearer it's never gotten any clearer since the <laughs> since this song was written not exactly clear but it's it's not exactly obvious as Dewey Cox would say anyway um, tonight's show our guest is Robin McCutcheon and let me give you a little bit of her background Robin earned her Ph.D. in economics from Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan. She's been teaching economics for over 20 years. Over 20 years. In all the economics courses she has taught as well, principles of economics, both macro and micro, money and banking, comparative uh, economic systems, labor economics, and managerial economics, she uses principles of free market systems. Robin uses Anne Rand. Ayn Rand, I always, that for, uh, the A-Y-N always gets my, my, I can't 
nail it every time. Uh, Mises, everybody knows Mises, Hayek, Milton Friedman, Cleon Skousen, and others to explain the, uh, the in English how our country's founding principles lead to free markets or led to free markets and the best path to liberty and freedom and prosperity for everyone. Over 90% of Dr. McCutcheon's students exit her courses avid and staunch libertarian or fiscal conservatives. It's been a long time, but uh, I'm so happy to welcome her back. Robin, are you there? I am. Can you hear me? I can hear you just fine. When was the last time you were on? Was it in the spring or before that? It was May the 8th. Okay, so spring. There you go. Mm -hmm. Well, it's great to can have you back. Can you see back. me too? Yep, you look great. You sound great. Excellent. So how's the semester been? It has been wild. How so? Um, our university built a new building for the College of Business and... I have been training like a madwoman on the new technology that our new business building will be, will be featuring. Um, we're moving away from chalkboards and dry erase boards to a full-on um, system that is, it looks to me like it's space-age technology. And um, I, I have a secret weapon, though, and my secret weapon is my husband, who, who he just loves technology. Um, give me a chalkboard. Just, you know, I can operate a chalkboard, but uh, Tim and I have been training together and he's been teaching me how to make shortcuts on this new technology work. And so I'm going to be looking at redesigning how I teach to be, you know, a 21st century professor. Wow. So, yeah, so we're all moving. All of the professors are moving all of their offices on January the 2nd, and the semester starts off with a bang on January the 9th. So, well, the good, it's, the, the good it's thing, the, the economic theory, at least, has not changed that much in the last couple hundred years, though. So you, you, it's just Thank maybe, for that. yeah, may, maybe just new toys to play with older and uh, time-tested concepts. You know, I still remember it in when I was in high school, well, of course, we had... Um, I love chalkboards. I loved watching people write in chalk. I loved it, especially if you had a uh, teacher that really just had a knack for holding the chalk, and they were just going crazy, script, all that stuff. Um, I, 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 I love um, uh, Fulton Sheen. Uh, I, I used to love, I, I love going back to all of his old videos because he's always using chalk as well. There's something about the sound of it. There's something about the way... The, just the the way that it flows, I love the whole thing. I love being able to be the ones to bang out the erasers at the end of the day. You know, it was it was a lot of fun. I really hope that chalk doesn't go away completely. Well, I don't think we'll get too far from chalk, but um, I will be retiring my um, uh, Crayola sidewalk chalks. Um, we're not going to have any chalkboards there, so I think I'll find someone with young children and give it all away. Mm. But um, my my high technology chalk is to use different colors so that when I'm drawing graphs or when I'm um, scribing out equations that I can put things in different colors so that the students can um, kind of keep everything straight in their in their heads. It's It's a visual learning aid that that I'm reluctant to get rid of but this new technology is an electronic dry erase board without the dry erase part and mm. so I will still have various colors that I can use um, to scribe out my my equations or draw my graphs and 
So I'm I'm satisfied at least that I get to keep using colored ink. Yeah, Can I say ink. I know it's it's, it's something. It's not ink. I know it's something. Uh, it's something. And especially since you usually delete it, you erase it digitally too. It's just. It's, That's right. It's crazy. You know, I mean, since you're t before we get into the world at large, I want to ask you about bricks. I want to talk about gold a little bit. There's a lot. There's a lot going on. But since we're talking about the way that you conduct yourself in in the classroom, um, the the ways that you have found that students uh, absorb information a little bit more, what's a little bit more stimulating, and how in, how data sticks. Um, I had read. I read through a. A project recently um, on the other the other night it was a creation myth project that was assigned to someone I know by their mm -hmm. shapers class and and I, I you as a professional I I had to bring this up with you tonight because I wanted to get your thoughts on it here the whole crux here I know that you've read it because I sent it to you immediately um, they've been charged with forming this person and the group inside of their class charged with forming a new civilization and it's it's complete with a creation myth that needs to be indestructible logic, okay? That's the real thing that's crazy. It has to be indestructible logic, rituals, artifacts, and you know, as a, as a professor on a high level, who I am sure uses simulations all the time to make real world concepts more tangible. I just wanted to know what you thought about this um, in particular, especially the performance aspect of it. It was very, very, very heavy on performance of these rituals that they had to create. Mm -hmm. I think, um, I don't think I can say exactly what I, my response was to you by email. Um, but oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, it might, oh. get you, might get you kicked off of all of your platforms. Um, but I, but reading through the Honors Shapers of the World project, what I thought, I think it comes down to is this is a way of erasing a student's or a person's entire background, um, tearing it all the way down to the foundations and teaching them that how they were raised is irrelevant. Did, did that make any sense? I, I, and, and, and is it, have you, did you reach that conclusion? Because in the, in the process of these 16 year old children getting together to create a civilization from its most sacred tenets of culture, do uh -huh. they start realizing that, wow, if I can create this out of nothing, maybe everything was bullshit. It's, you know, I, it wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me if young people come to that kind of a conclusion. Um, it, it sort of reminded me of my philosophy class decades ago, where um, the professor basically devolved religion, not spirituality, but religion and theology all the way down to God does not exist. And I, I, that really shook my foundations because that sure as heck wasn't the way I was raised. And, um, and when I took that um, final piece to my parents to discuss it, and when I, when I had this class, I was not a young, well, I was younger than I am now, but I, I wasn't a fresh 18 year old. 
right? I was I was probably closer to 30 and I discussed this class with my parents every weekend that I saw them and they got they got more and more distressed as the semester went along because I think they could see where it was heading. They could see that it was heading to this professor was going to convince the class that um, everything that they'd been taught about religion, everything that they'd been brought up with that involved God in any way was going to be destroyed. And um, and that's that's what this project reminded me of. Um, I think that it's I think it's okay for people to reflect upon the manner and in which they were raised and the ideas that were formed for them by their parents and their family and close community as they were young, you know, one, two, three, four, five-year-olds. I think it's okay to do that. But I, but I have a sneaking suspicion that this particular project um, has a much more uh, devious goal in mind. Um, I don't know. I I probably if if this was a class that that I was not required to take, I probably would drop out of it. Um, but but again, I'm looking at this from decades older than I was when I had that philosophy class ages ago. Yeah. Um, and I, and I'm not sure that an 18 or 19 year old, certainly not a 16 year old would understand the ultimate goal behind this particular project. Um, but you know, people don't, I think a lot of times professors maybe don't pause to think very long about these really great ideas that come out of teaching conferences. Um, this particular one that that um, has students designing a brand new culture from the ground up, maybe did they pause to consider that where we're at today is the result of 30 or 40,000 years of humans living on the earth and um, the, the, the ways that we have survived all of those thousands of years involve a, a an origin story, regardless of how logical or illogical it is. Um, the people who never survived, the, the fools who don't survive, are, are the ones who don't consider action and reaction, choice and consequence, you know, um, my my favorite story that I tell my my students in my comparative economic systems classes, you know, think about the cavemen, Ugg and Doug, and they're standing on the top of a cliff, and Ugg looks at Doug and says, why don't you just go ahead and step off that cliff? I mean, there's lots of clouds there. I'm sure they're I'm sure they're steady and you could stand on them. And so if Ugg is a fool and steps off on the clouds, he doesn't survive to make any progeny, does he? No. So I, I'm, am I distressed that things like this are going on at university or even the higher grade levels in high school? Yeah, because I'm not sure that 
the result of these things for the students is going to be constructive. Well, you know, I'm I, not sure it's going to be helpful. Yeah, and, and, and that's just one thing where you, there could be, and I, I wanted to dig a little bit more into what the, the final conclusions were. You know, after everybody did their performances, it was the, the ritual aspect of it was very odd. That's why I didn't mm-hmm. know with, with so, such emphasis. But I, I, I really am interested to see what the what the conclusions drawn were. There has to be something that that they come everybody involved in this class walks away from and understands why they did it uh, or something to chew on as they go into their next semester so uh-huh. i um I, i'm looking out for that but it just um it just seems like it's a, a the same old type of messaging and, and it's a platform for one thing or another even if it's just preparatory for the next exercise that takes it to the next level but um right. with that being said talking about um how we all got here and where we're going to go next uh-huh. we we do live in this very moment as you have pointed out in the last i don't know how every time that you've been on with me we do live in a major time of flux and we're still waiting to see who is going to have the opportunity to really be the ones to write the history and who are really going to be able to be the ones to uh introduce the new systems that come in and uh-huh. uh, i think the first thing that we're going to see in 2024 is a little bit on where this bricks system is going to be going so when we talk about a multipolar world and we talk about the dollar and we talk about anything else that rises up in its place or is going to compete with it bricks cryptocurrency uh and the war that happens between all of them the regulatory war that happens between all of them what do you see in january of 2024 what kind of impact do you think this uh bricks 11 stuff is going to have on the u.s if any at all Oh, I I think that the impact on the United States and worldwide is going to be nothing short of astounding. Um, In some of the research that I've done, so let me back up a little bit and let your audience know what BRICS stands for. BRICS are the five countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, that um, have designed a consortium and a, an international bank where they can um, use their own currencies to trade with each other for goods and services across international lines. Um, so instead of using a Federal Reserve note, for example, to buy oil, um, China, let's say China wants to buy some oil from Saudi Arabia, instead of using a Federal Reserve note, a petrodollar, if you will, Um, China would use their own currency, the yuan, and trade yuan for oil to Saudi Arabia. In fact, they've already done this. India has also purchased oil from Saudi Arabia using the Chinese yuan as well, not the U.S. dollar. And so what, what the BRICS countries are doing is they are migrating away from using the U.S. dollar in any kind of trade and exchange. Now, in August, they met in South Africa, and they have, um, they have invited six other countries to join them in this consortium. And the, the other countries are Argentina, Egypt, Ethiopia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates. And so starting January the 1st, this is when the whole thing kicks off, 
it's going to be BRICS 11. Um, and so what you have there is you've got a powerhouse of oil production and agricultural production where um, these countries, these 11 countries will be trading with each other, not using the US dollar, not using the Federal Reserve note or treasuries of any sort. US treasuries is what I mean. Mm -hmm. And so um, at the summit that they had in August, they um, there were other countries, let me see here, there were um, at least 10 other countries that decided to join the BRICS 11. They are Algeria, Bangladesh, Bahrain, Belarus, Bolivia, Venezuela, Vietnam, Guinea, Greece, Honduras, Indonesia, Cuba, Kuwait, Morocco, Mexico, Nigeria, Tajikistan, Thailand, Tunisia, Turkey, and Syria. And so you're gonna have you're gonna have really the powerhouse of oil producers across the world that will be committed to trading with each other without using any kind of U.S. dollars. Now, what I'd like to point out to your listeners is, is that just the BRICS countries, uh, UAE, um, up, so the BRICS 11 countries, their total GDP amounts to 29.2 trillion, and their debt is 8.9 trillion. So keep that in mind. Their um, debt to GDP ratio is very small right? Um, it's a fraction. But if you look at the G7, so that's Italy, Canada, Japan, France, Germany, Great Britain, and the United States, their total GDP is 43.5 trillion. Compare that to the 29 trillion. Mm -hmm. But the debt rate, the debt is 55.5 trillion. So just the saturated GDP ratio for the G7, the debt outweighs the GDP for the G7, whereas with the BRICS 11, the debt is a fraction of the GDP, which means that these G7 countries are are comatose. Can I say it that way? Well, I mean, they, this is when, when you put it that way again, I mean, for years, everybody's been doing the math over here in the United States mm -hmm. where uh, it, it's going to get to the point where all of the taxes that they collect from us is only going to be good enough to pay the interest. And we're not even taking any pieces out of the principal anymore. And the, right. and the spending never stops. So right. w w what happens? I mean, at, at that point, when it is you're underwater, it's I mean, what what does collapse look like in 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 the EU and and the U.S.? I, I I was talking with a friend of mine the other day on the show, and you know, for however many years, I'm not even a very big uh, uh, economy money guy, but I I know that when I am overdrafted in my personal bank account, it's not a good thing, and when you're overdrafted by trillions, uh, I it you really tend to wonder when. You hit the wall, and what does hit the wall even look like? Because this can't go on. I understand. It's not going to. Yeah. Um, so some of the so so, if I can, that I'm going to quote this article that I that I pulled off the internet 
The G7, for all practical purposes, has now entered an intensive care unit, and the G20 may be next. The new global globe, G20, may be the BRICS 11, or probably the BRICS 20, or even the BRICS 40. And this article says, by then, the petrodollar will be on life support in the ICU, but we don't have a petrodollar anymore because the potato took us off of the petrodollar um, a year ago in August when he took us out of Afghanistan. There is, there is no asset backing the U.S. dollar, whereas for the BRICS 11, the plans are um, with their um, investment bank, with their um, uh, development bank, every country in this consortium will find some kind of an asset to back their currency, gold or silver, or diamonds or oil or something. Hmm. And and when that happens and it's coming very fast, when when you have the 11 biggest oil producing nations in the world, you know, without the U.S., and they all have a currency that is backed by an asset, then you have effectively taken the Federal Reserve note and just ripped it apart. I mean, it's it's not worth anything. It's not only worthless, it won't be accepted in trade. Imagine for a moment um, what's coming in the early part of next year when some of these countries that I've named off refuse to take Federal Reserve notes or U.S. Treasury bonds in exchange for goods that um, that these countries want to export to us, that we want to import. And if they will not accept any U.S. dollar or a U.S. Treasury bond in exchange, how do we get those goods? What happens to the global trade? to us, the U.S. I would say in the past, something like that would mean, oh, I'm pretty sure we're going to start bombing that country soon. But Well, I, you, you would think so, except that what's been going on with the military. Right, exactly. Right? It's, not, it's, not, it's not viable anymore. I mean, the, That's the, right. I mean we're still we're, we're trying to manage two war zones right now. Um, oh, please. But, but it's, 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 just not, it's just not 20 years ago. It's not viable anymore. And nobody cares. So I guess that would be the big thing is working out for those headlines of uh, the first headlines of, of Treasury bonds being rejected by, by BRICS members then. Well, I think, you know, I, I, here's my sneaking suspicion. Um, and this is just a hunch. So maybe take it with a grain of salt. But what if those countries are already not accepting the Federal Reserve note or U.S. Treasury bonds in trade. Um, we, we've, over the summer, we heard about the longshoremen um, strikes over on the West Coast. I'm sure you, that you read about that mm -hmm. in some of your grab bags. Well, what if those strikes are the companies that those longshoremen work for telling the longshoremen, look, you, you've got to go on strike because we just don't have the cargo to unload. No, we're, we're <laughs> we are not able to pay for the goods coming in from Southeast Asia 
because they won't accept our Federal Reserve notes or they won't accept our U.S. Treasury bonds. This is this is the uh, th- these are the stories of where there were just cargo ships just waiting in line piled up. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I think um, during the a year ago this time, I was having my um, my principal principles of economics students look online to the cargo ship tracker there there is such a thing it's like flight flight tracker or only for cargo ships and at one point somewhere around the end of october a year ago one of the students said my god there's 500 ships waiting to be unloaded and they're not moving anywhere mm. and i remember seeing um videos on twitter or TikTok of people on the west coast driving down the highway with their cameras saying, look, look at all those cargo ships lined up there. They haven't moved in days. Have they since dissipated that, that line? That Because uh, I haven't seen anything since. You know, you know, I, I don't know because I haven't seen any more videos, but I find it um, interesting that the trucking company t- called Yellow, are, are you familiar with that kind of, that truck? It's, it's the name of the trucking company literally is Yellow. And they just went bankrupt about a month ago. Hmm. Now, did they go bankrupt because the price of diesel fuel was so high? Or did they go bankrupt because they didn't have enough cargo to ship? Or, you know, another index that you could look at is the, this is going to sound weird, the cardboard box index, which tracks the number of cardboard boxes that are purchased by um, trucking companies or cargo companies, and that index is down 40%. Because why would you buy a box if you have nothing to sh- put in it to ship? See, this is all very spooky stuff that obviously <laughs> obviously someone like me is never looking into an index like that. So, well, you know. I find I find indices incredibly exciting. <laughs> I, thank God. Thank God for it. And yeah. uh you know, thank God you have a 90 plus percent rate of having uh, fiscally conservative students leave your classroom. So, I know that uh, at least they're in good hands. Um Well, well, one would think but let me let me quote something that um, President Putin said in August. He said he drove home the necessity to quote establish a permanent BRICS transport commission, which would deal not only with the North South project, referring to the INTSC transportation corridor, whose key BRICS members are Russia, Iran, and India but also on a broader scale with the development of logistics and transport corridors interregional and global so there these these countries are very serious about completely moving away from using um, the US dollar the federal reserve note and any kind of US treasury in payment for their goods hmm. they they are determined and let me also read um, what president xi jinping of China said, he basically said, uh, he, he quoted a Chinese proverb that the proverb says, no mountains can stop the surging flow of a mighty river. Wherever resistance there, whatever resistance there may be, bricks, a positive and stable force for good will continue to grow. We will forge stronger bricks strategic partnership, expand the bricks plus model actively advance membership expansion, deepen solidarity and cooperation with other 
EMDCs, Emerging Market Developing Countries, promote global multipolarity and greater democracy and in international relations and help make the international order more just and equitable. So all of these third world countries, I'm going to put third world in quotes, all these third world countries are finally, um, finally leaning on each other rather than the United States or the European Union or, or you know, even the Bank of Canada or New Zealand or, or Australia. They're leaning up on themselves and they're forging a partnership that is going to it's going to decimate the Western central banking system. That's what it's going to do. It's And it's not going to do it all at once. It's it's going to, I think it's going to roll out rather slowly. So even though we're going to get the first shot across the bow um, come the beginning of January, it's, it's not going to be a fast rollout because it's going to take time for these countries to um, get their act together if if i can say it that way and and learn how to work together productively um as opposed to uh fighting and squabbling amongst themselves which was always the way that the u.s wanted things right we didn't want any of these countries to get together and make partnerships we wanted them fighting and squabbling against each other i mean just look what's happening in the middle east you know what yeah as you say that i hate to say this the fighting and the squabbling uh, with this kind of a threat to that um, hegemony of the, uh-huh. the United States dollar, with this kind of a threat, with that, with so many countries for around the world coming together under the the, uh, the BRICS label and really you know throwing down for a new alternative here, uh, it almost makes me say that I don't believe in the. Um, the authenticity of BRICS as a as an endeavor, unless there is a a, a major act of act of war from the West, because it is such a it is such a threat. It almost makes it would make me suspicious if this transition were bloodless, because then it would make me think that people who are holding the strings in the West have a lot of um, have a lot of uh, you know stake in how BRICS rises up and maybe fills the void of the system that they plundered. It, it, that's just, that's just where that. my mind goes. I, I, could, I, can see, I can see exactly what you're, where you're coming from, and, and I, I can't help but agree. I just, I just have this feeling. Can, I mean, Secretary Yellen, or, or Treasury Secretary, I call her Grandma Yellen, has already said, hey, yeah, the United States can fight a two-front war. Um, can you tell me the last country that fought a two-front war and won? <laughs> can you imagine fighting a, a war against the BRICS 11? It, it would, it, it's unthinkable. I, I just, I can't even imagine it. So, and on the one hand, yeah, I, you have a good point there. You know, if if there isn't some kind of um, I don't want to say military action, but if there isn't some kind of a, a pushback Events, of some yeah. sort, it it does make you wonder if the puppet masters don't have their claws into the BRICS movement movement as well. Yeah. Well, I you know what it it, I, it could be as um, 
it could be as straightforward as as we've talked about here but uh but just what the way that we've lived through everything um it, it's very hard to just take things as it is and not come up with alternative theories and just let that simmer um yeah as you discussed as you discussed m- methods of payment and uh and you know dollar to debt ratios and all that other stuff there's something else that i would love to hear you comment on at least just briefly because i have other questions i want to ask you in um over the course of this year alone i picked up on numerous articles i had one over here that i got from uh, the 10th amendment center.com this was back in april i think where it was uh news about arkansas passing Uh a bill that would legalize gold and silver as legal tender in the state now i've seen these come and go these bills that are passed state by state basis gold Uh and silver are legal tender like that means you can go into a hardware store apparently Uh in these states and i'm thinking okay well that's cool that these states are taking taking some matters into their own hands but it wasn't until i spoke with you that you said that the number of states who have already done this is somewhere around 30 or so is that is that true well um let, let me let me back up a little bit um I did pull an article from Investor Observer in April, and as of April, there were 23 states that had either bills pending or uh, legislation already passed to recognize gold and silver as legal tender. There are Alaska, Arizona, Arkansas, Idaho, Iowa, Kansas, Kentucky, Maine, Minnesota, Mississippi, Missouri, Montana, New Jersey, Oregon, South Carolina, Tennessee, Texas, Vermont, West Virginia, and Wisconsin. And I was not able to verify that um, that the other dozen states that would put us up over 30, um, it's, it's, I've, okay, I'll say it, I've heard a rumor and I've not been able to verify it that there were a dozen more states that joined these. But we already know that Tennessee and Texas have um, passed legislation and are in the process of building their own sovereign gold bullion banks. Oh, really? I have I have students from Tennessee and they're so excited. They're just ecstatic. They can't wait because Tennessee and Texas um, are showing the way for the other states in our union to remove themselves from the Federal Reserve System. Because as soon as these states start, as as soon as these states have legalized using gold and silver as legal tender, those states take themselves out of the Federal Reserve, out from under the Federal Reserve umbrella, and there's no need to use a Federal Reserve note, which that's the U.S. dollar that's in your wallet. Um, now you can use that Federal Reserve note to buy gold and silver, which should be a wise thing because you're taking a basically worthless piece of toilet paper and you're trading it for um, a solid asset of gold or silver. So um, we, we, are, we are seeing the movement of states across the United States taking themselves away from the Federal Reserve. So it, it's sort of a microcosm of the BRICS movement, right? The BRICS yeah. are moving away from the Federal Reserve system by using their own currencies to trade with. And now we have at a at a more micro level, we have states that are telling their citizens it's okay for you to use gold and silver um, as legal tender. Now, I haven't seen anyone buying their groceries with gold or silver coins in my little town. Right. 
Um, but. See that, that, that that's the one thing when I when I think about I I love the concepts I root when it. I see it happen then I'll go see there it is well because if you see it happen that's it, it's so much different than anything you can think of I I want to yeah. live in that world I want to live in that world as quickly as possible but if you go <laughs> if you go into a uh, you know a, a store and you want to buy some bread and you want to buy some milk and the total comes out to I don't know ten dollars and fifty cents, and you take out a an ounce of silver and you toss in that way, and you say, oh oh oh, by the way, that's that's thirty two dollars right now. That's twenty eight. You you owe me this much change. That's right. that's an. I I, I want to see that actually play out because I can't actually I can't I can't see that in my head. Well, well, we know. Um, I I have had students who have come from. Um, South American countries like Venezuela, where at the front door of every store, they will have gold and silver buyers, and they have weights and measures so that they can um, weigh out the gold and silver and then write out a little draft note to take into the store that says, Joe's got, you know, $45 worth of gold or uh, wait a minute, it would be the Venezuelan, is that the Venezuelan peso, whatever it is, whatever their currency name is, you know, Joe's got so much of this and he can go into that store and spend it. But that's just, you know, that's just a reversion back to the old way that um, gold and silver dealers used to do um, their business anyway. Mm -hmm. So we know, we know that other countries are doing this, even though we've never seen it in our own country, um, still, you know, it doesn't mean that it, it's not going to happen. It's, I think we have a bit farther to fall off the cliff before we get to the point where my little grocery store down the streets has someone sitting outside its front door with, you know, weights and measures for measuring gold or silver and um and probably someone standing next or several someone standing next to them with ak-47s just to make sure no one makes off with all the right. coinage yeah right i i think i think at first it's really just going to have to be among among people in a tag sale kind of a way where hey i also in i i accept gold and silver i accept huh. this and that and and maybe the businesses and and business owners who are wise to these trends start making it a little bit more known on a you know a store to store basis or whatever right. it is it, it's just something that has to has to spread around and you know that well, brings me to my next thing well wait wait okay. before you go to that next question i will tell you that i have already made a deal with my landlord to pay my rent in silver when really? the time comes really yes and now are, yes. when you say when you say when the time comes are you also expecting for the silver to be uh then valued at what people say it should be where it's almost a couple of thousand an ounce where it's depressed right now are you are you uh um calculating this based on the market value of silver right now or if it is able to be reevalu revalued well i think if you um I think if you go over to usdebtclock.org and look on the far right-hand side, um, there is a column where uh, where gold and silver are. I think the gold and so they're not valued. They used to be valued in the in M2, but it was the change in the money supply. Oh yeah, the there it is. Change in M2, 
Well, the change in M2, M2 has been reducing, so that change is negative. And so that number has been zero with a little asterisk next to it for months now. But if you look farther on down the column, you should see where gold and silver actually have um, values attached to them. And Do maybe you can tell me what they say. I said, right over, you're talking about dollar to silver ratio? Yes, please. Dollar to silver ratio, and this you're not going to find this on uh, on quite frankly dot gold or SD bullion or Apex or anything like that. For an ounce of silver, it says dollar to silver ratio is fifteen hundred fifty seven dollars right okay. now. So that, I mean that that is what it should cool. be. That's that is the estimated free market value. And I'm going to say estimated because we know that in the gold and the silver markets, those are those dollar amounts in the gold and the silver markets are um, almost, run almost completely, totally by paper trading uh, gold and silver contracts. Gold and so gold is at so, is almost thirteen thousand dollars an ounce. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I mean, that's that's probably if I had to guess, I would say. That's a very rough, maybe up in the nosebleed section of the stadium seats of the market value of gold and silver. But if you go to um, if you go to CNBC right up at the top of their page and you click on the link that says gold, it'll show you the dollar amounts for precious metals in the paper trading markets that are run and operated by, um, they're run and operated out of New York and London, and they're highly manipulated markets. So those numbers that you see on CNBC for an ounce of gold, I think this morning it was like $1,980, um, but it probably changed. And I think the silver amount I saw halfway through the day was something like $23.60. But those are vastly, vastly under, undervalued. Um, so, yeah, when I went to my when I went to my landlord and said, "Hey, um, I see coming a disaster in the market," and our Federal Reserve note, when it when it becomes totally worthless, I would like to pay my rent in silver. And he said, "Sure, we can do that." Oh. Hey, uh, yeah. Well, once once everybody agrees that that yeah. ounce that that ounce is uh, is what it's supposed to be, and not I don't know, it, it fluctuates between twenty five and thirty two dollars an ounce, and it right. never never gets right. higher than that. It seems, but right, but but that like I said, that twenty five and thirty two dollar amount for an ounce of silver that is vastly undervalued and it's highly manipulated. It is not operating in a free market at all okay and so you know when i want to see what the rough value of an ounce of silver is i head over to the u.s debt clock and then i and then i kind of go yay <laughs> okay so then this is what i want to ask you now and we okay. have and and um you know uh, we're coming up on on our intermission in about you know eight minutes or so robin would you be willing to uh hang with me and um and stay on past intermission for a couple more minutes I will stay with you as long as you like. That's what I like to hear. So, um, 
I guess we'll just get started with this. And in, in around eight minutes, I'll tell you that we have to hop off, and we're gonna okay. we're gonna go on over to to uh, Pilled and Quite Frankly TV, and and just uh, pick up there. But uh, it, you're talking about the free market, and I want to ask you about that in particular. Just the, even okay. the words, the the phrases here. I received an email last year advising me not to use the term capitalism, that it was a communist red herring of a term that actually dilutes the understanding of what the free market is. And I thought for sure that you were the one that wrote this to me, but it may not, it may have been from one of the audience members. And either way, I love your thoughts on it. And and here's what was written to me. Frank, the founders knew that encouraging political party affiliation would end up in a left-right controversy, which is why they reframed the conversation toward liberty versus tyranny path instead. The left-right path is the path to destruction because it's built on a fallacy. It's built on the lie that these two ends of the spectrum are stable, that they won't change or shift about or become completely convoluted or entwined in each other. Maybe the comments, uh, the communists, maybe the communists somewhere back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, found a foil to use to degrade or confuse the public about the free market, use the idea of capitalism against Americans. Do you remember who originally coined the word capitalist? It was Karl Marx. Conspiracy? I don't know, but I don't know for sure, but it wouldn't surprise me since divide and conquer is their main M.O. This is the last thing that they say, Robin. Uh, That's why using their word of capitalism to describe American economy is incorrect. When we follow the Constitution and have government under proper regulation, we have a free market economy, not a capitalist one. So my question for you, Robin, uh, for whatever time we have left in the first half is, if capitalism and the free market are not just interchangeable words and phrases, what, in your view, are the greatest differences between the two? Well, when we talked about this earlier today, um, if you would just type into Google capitalism and tell me what it says, because I don't remember the exact words that I read to you this uh, this afternoon when I typed it into Google, but I think it had something to do with um, um, ownership of private property and production. But please remind me um, what that, because I know you've got like three screens there, and I've only got just my one. Uh, of of what, do you, what do you want me to bring, uh, bring please up? Please type into Google okay. just the word capitalism and see what it comes up with. Definition. Here we go. Uh-huh. Okay. Economic and political system in which countries' trade and industry are controlled by private owners for profit. For profit. Yes. Now type in the words free market. Free market definition. Uh-huh. An economic system in which prices are determined by unrestricted competition between privately owned businesses. Mm. Do you see the difference well, there? I, I, well, I can see how it's written out, but if you can, you know, um, I would so, love to get a little bit more. Uh, so, go, so go back to capitalism and tell me once again what it says. Economic and political system in which a country's trade and industry are controlled by private owners for profit. Okay. And then... So, and then now read the free market one. Unrestricted competition between privately owned businesses. But, I mean, in, in that respect... But, what, but, what, it, but it said where prices are determined... By unrestricted competition, yeah. By, by the market forces of supply and demand. In other words... Um, the, the it, it do you see how subtle the difference is between those two so is capitalism in itself uh a 
a monopoly? Are they just are they talking about monopoly, coercive forces? Uh, whereas the free market is is I, I'm trying to I'm trying to see where because I see the differences. But even when okay. you talk about free market over here, and it said, um, like for example. Prices are determined un- by unrestricted competition between privately owned businesses. Do those privately owned businesses not want to turn a profit? So I don't know wh- what what the okay uh, now now okay so in inside of free markets is prices market prices are determined by the market forces the, by the competition between businesses who are who are competing for our dollars from consumers. So in other words, inside. Inside of the idea of a free market, there's no government interference. Okay. And if you go back and you look at capitalism, read that one again. Capitalism, the uh, economic and political system in which a country's trade and industry are controlled by private owners for profit. Controlled. Hmm. See, the difference between capitalism and free markets is there's no control going on in free markets. It's what Adam Smith. Um, it's what Adam Smith said about the invisible hand. You know, um, there he he said that there was. It almost seemed as it, I'm going to paraphrase. It almost seemed as if there was an invisible hand uh, working through the markets, where these forces of demand and supply not being controlled by anything, but it is the. It is all of the action of businesses competing against each other to attract consumers to buy their product. And these two market forces, demand and supply, the businesses competing against each other, drive down the market price. So there's no government interference in a free market. Inside of capitalism, there's sort of a a hint, a very subtle hint that there's some nefarious actions going on where the forces of demand and supply don't really matter. It's not demand and supply that are controlling things. It's the business owners. You know, there was does, a. Does that make any sense? It does, and it reminded me of a. It reminded me of a story that I heard on the Brian McClanahan show, and he was talk. It was probably around Independence Day, and we were talking. The topic on the show was about the war for independence and what really sparked it. And of course, everybody likes to say that a 3% tax on tea is what got us up in arms. But what, what he was trying to convey, and I don't, I would, I can't recall all of the details here, but I know enough to see a, uh, a connection to what you're saying is that the real reason why American colonists were really upset, which led to the Boston tea party was uh, that there, it was selective tax taxation on tea Uh that certain products were being taxed and others were being granted privileges uh Uh you know from the powers that be that again we see this this uh this pairing of big business with the regulatory body that is government and that becomes a that just becomes the new order where yeah Uh there is a there is a uh i don't know maybe like a a superficial sense of free market there but it's not it's not free right. at all. It's cro- right. cronyism, pretty much. It's cronyism is what it is. And um, so I take exception to the phrase crony capitalism because that to me is, it's an oxymoron. It's an ox and a moron because you can't have 
underlying capitalism, underlying Marx's thought about capitalism was that there was there had to be some kind of connection between business and government in order to um, force the market to work. Um, I, I'm I'm not a big lover of Marx. I really am not. I think um, I I think he did a great disservice to humanity um, by twisting the theories of free markets into such horrendous blobs of of stupidity. And I, I don't like to use the word capitalism when I'm teaching my comparative economic systems class. I prefer to use the phrase free markets because inside of free markets is the idea that, that government keeps its nose out of what's going on. And and Clearly, we do not have free markets today. Clearly, we don't. We, well, government has stuck its big fat nose into every aspect of business and personal life. Well, then let's take that. Let's take that um, that thought into the second half because I have questions okay. about monopolies. I want to ask you about unions. I want to talk about the brandy balls, and I want to ask. I want to <laughs> ask you what the best compliment you ever paid were. So, everybody, don't go anywhere. We're going to have Robin with us on the other side. Uh, more with her. We're going to take your calls. If you're on YouTube, Rumble, Rockfin, the direct links to our Pilled channel, the Foxhole channel, is right there in the description. For everyone else that we have provided them in the, the show tweets, the telegrams, it's all there. And if all else fails, you can always go to quitefrankly.tv and press play. Quite Frankly is powered by Foxhole. Just press play. There's no paywall. There's no strings attached, no censorship. And again, this episode will be uploaded in its entirety to podcast, rumble, bit shoot as soon as I get home tonight. So it's going to be archived all over the place. But for the live experience, please come with, uh, over with us because between whatever we have left with Robin and the greatest compliments you've ever paid, it's going to be a wonderful night and uh, we will see you there. Hop on over. I love you all. And don't ever, don't ever doubt that. I love you all. Be right back. It's intermission time, folks. Time out. I'm muted. Right button. Thank you. Ladies and Welcome to intermission. We'll, we'll be right back. Quite frankly. 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 Qu
Quite frankly. 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 We all support quite frankly. Not quite. Quite frankly. Let's go, Brandon. Quite frankly. In Roma, Italia. Quite frankly. You're going on Frank's show tonight? I want to get a Coke. Can I get a Coke? So everybody watch. Quite frankly. With Frank. Quite frankly. nights a couple of nights of practice and i'm getting i'm getting better at the the whole thing now i'm i got robin mccutcheon still with me this is a whole new operation to be able to pull over our guests and uh it feels more and more like radio to me i really love it robin you're still there i'm still here can you hear me i'm i hear you wonderful and you know i want to um i want to talk a little bit more about what we were just saying and then I will just save all the super chats for after you get off, and uh, and and we'll we'll go from there into other other topics. But on monopolies, let me bring you up on the screen with me. Where where did you go? There you are. On monopolies, this is where I wanted to say um, we talk about cronyism, we talk about the free market, we talk about uh, monopolies on everything, control, hegemony over a, a dollar, a currency, whatever. Um, Monopolies are the reason why most people, no matter how they vote, tend to say, well, we need some sort of authority to mediate on our behalf because, you know, like Teddy Roosevelt, he has a lot of fans to this day because of the so-called trust busting that was going on out there. How would small business, how would the little man survive giant competitors in the free market if one of them, let's say, became predatory? Because some companies... Even if they don't take on any government subsidies, they, they, they make as much money as some governments around the world do, and they could destroy their competitors fairly simply, no? Okay, so let's think about this for a minute. Let's, let's pretend for a second that we have a thousand small businesses and one gigundous company. And this one gigundous company can basically set the market price right because it has market share and market power and if this business sets the market price too high then those small businesses can also charge that high price right Mm -hmm. okay so the idea behind monopoly is that there is no competition there's not a thousand small businesses selling the same kind of product that the monopoly sells. And so um, in economics, are theoretically a monopoly, unless that monopoly owned a factor of production, so um, a copyright, a patent, a particular piece of land, a certain input into production that nobody else could get their hands on, that's what we call a natural monopoly, and those types of monopolies don't last very long. Why not? Unless, unless they have an in with the government, and they have lobbyists that will lobby the government legislatures 
that will put laws into place to protect the monopoly. Think AT and T. So, so when you but when you say a, a natural monopoly, so you have you have the business, you have the actual the resources all on. You have a patent, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. What is usually the driving factor between them not lasting too long? Is it because that anybody else can go and innovate? Well, yes, that's that's a big one that people can go and innovate. Um, but not only that, um, patents don't last very long. I think a patent, the lifespan of a patent is something like 17 years. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Um, the life of a copyright is only 75 years. Yeah. And, and so, um, and even though that's a long time, um, patents and copyrights don't make up the bulk of what gives a business a natural monopoly. It would be the ownership outright of um, a raw material. Think of De Beers, um, De Beers Diamond Company. Yeah. Right. They outright own ninety percent of the diamond mines in the world, and that used to hold them pretty good. But what happened? In the late nineteen seventies, we started having cubic zirconia, right? and moissanite started showing up. It's moissanite as a, a spurious diamond. Um, one of my favorite movies is Snatch, and there's a 57 carat diamond that this poor dog swallows down. And anyway, it doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, the point is, is that natural monopolies are very rare because um, most of the time people can innovate away from, they can innovate away around that ownership of that particular input into production. And um, so natural monopolies don't last very long. Now, the kind of monopolies that do last a long time are the kind that have a government sanction. Um, Back in, what was it, 1888 or 1884, when Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone, Mm -hmm. and I put invented in quotes, um, Bell Telephone had... Um, Bell Telephone owned all the telephone poles and all the wires everywhere. They also had government sanction to be the only company to put up these telephone poles and wires all over the country so that by the time we get to the like um, the early 1900s, there, there was no way for another company to innovate around that. Um, and Bell Telephone held sole monopoly status until about the mid-1970s when they were finally sued for being a monopoly, even though they were a government-sanctioned monopoly. And so um, the Supreme Court came down, and I, I don't remember the case number, but I um, I did some study on it. Um, the Supreme Court came down and they told Bell Telephone, you have to divide your company up into eight smaller companies and we called them the baby bells well it turns out that bell telephone as a monopoly a giant company was so overweight in um production costs that that as a big company they could hide the fact that they were not profitable Mm. they were actually getting government money in order to keep running and so when the Supreme Court demanded that Bell Telephone divide itself into eight smaller companies, into the baby bells, that's when it became quite evident that every single one of those baby bells was going 
bankrupt. Um, but at the same time that AT and that that Bell Telephone was um, commanded to break itself into eight parts, what comes along in the meantime? Steve Jobs. Mm. Yep. Um, other company, other telephone companies were allowed to demand from now AT&T because Bell changed its name. Um, other telephone companies were allowed to demand from AT&T space on their um, wires to um, be able to sell long distance and, um, and other kinds of phones. Bell Telephone was also commanded that they had to, instead of renting the telephone, you, you probably remember your grandmother had a, a great big black telephone that went wee when it, yeah, you know, that you could tell, you could hear the ring down the, down the block. All of those telephones you had to rent from Bell Telephone. You never owned your phone. And so part of the Supreme Court decision was that Bell Telephone could no longer they had to offer the phone for sale in addition to being rented. And so people started buying their phones. So as soon as you buy the phone, Bell Telephone's not getting any money from that. So Bell Telephone finally had some competition come up in the 1980s. And, you know, the next thing you know, we're carrying around cell phones. You, surely you remember the big bag phones? Yeah, well, yeah. The, the bricks that looked I've, like a brick yeah absolutely right? I mean I, 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 ne I never I never owned one but I was young enough to see them being used and, and showing up in television shows and everything yep. else so yeah uh, you know but by the time I was coming of age I, I was just the right age to start getting in on the beepers you know we were yes. we, we had the beepers in the in the pagers right so. right so my my point was was that Bell telephone, had um, they had a monopoly control, not not just on the technology at the time, the technology of the time, but they had monopoly control of all the telephone poles and all the wires. They owned it. There was no way for anybody to squeeze in on the side hmm. until Bell Telephone was broken up into the eight baby bells, and then that made enough space for enough time other people to come along and innovate around that so then wouldn't you say in that respect government intervention and regulation was a good thing for restoring some kind of competition yes i would okay absolutely and i guess i, I guess uh, yeah that's what i and yeah. that's you know yeah I, I i'm i'm not totally against government um i'm i'm just against stupid government yeah okay so that's most of it yeah. But, oh, absolutely. It's it's most of it. Uh, that's and, you know. And I think that what, what but, really comes. But see, remember that wasn't government, not not like legislature that did that to Bell Telephone. That was the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. So that was the third branch of government, not the legislature. I, I, it was the legislature that created the created the environment where Bell Telephone could flourish as its own monopoly for 103 years. I get what you're saying. That was the problem. And I think I think really what I was I'm I was getting around to with that is that the the average person we um we don't know how to say what level of regulation or what in what ways some sort of an authority a government authority whether from whatever branch it comes from is appropriate 
in having some kind of power to put a stop to, to at, uh, practices that are predatory. Uh, I think everybody just likes to be generalized with saying, oh, yeah, well, I think that we should we should fight against monopolies. Okay, how? And then it, it would just be crickets. I wouldn't. I wouldn't know what to tell you. Um, I, first thing I would say is, hey, let's just start destroying red tape. Let's get rid of government subsidies. Let's just let's just first thing we do is divorce the private sector from the public. Uh, that, would about, be a, that would be a good first start. But that, note but that's, that that's where I would I, I wouldn't know where to go from there, though, Robin. Well, no, note that Bell Telephone would not have had the advantage that it did, but for government intervention. If the government hadn't intervened in the first place, somebody would have come up with a workaround. Mm -hmm. Somebody would have come up with um, maybe the financial capital to sink their own poles and run their own wires. So um, a lot of the things that happen inside of um, inside of the market where a monopoly can form is because somebody in legislature or the legislature at the federal level um, messed around with some laws or created some laws that allowed that company to become very large and very powerful market-wise, market share-wise. Okay. So, I mean, that that's what my studies have revealed to me is that most of the time the legislature at the federal level causes the problem, and then it takes 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 years for um, the Supreme Court to catch up to it and and put a stop to it. But you know, by then you've had several decades of of um, disaster for people who could have innovated around that particular obstacle, and that's that's what small business is really good at doing. They're really good at innovating to get around um, the rules and the regulations that um, our federal government or our state governments impose on businesses in the market. Um, as far as I'm concerned, there there's more disaster and destruction created by government than is ever solved by it and i can't i can't tell you the number of times i've heard somebody say i don't really like what's going on there there ought to be a law against that well you get 45 or 60 billion of those and the next thing you know you're strangling to death under rules and regulations and and you've got what we've got right now which is you know the potato coming out and and ruling that his FCC has to come in and take over um, the internet. Oh, I know, I know, and it, it really does. Um, it, it really does take away a it almost takes away a person's ability to run a business. We it know does, that it does that. They're completely. We're already very completely restricted on how personnel is managed, hiring, firing. I mean, there is. You can tell it's all by design as well, too. This has been sure. going on for decades. But yeah. uh, talking about, I think the one last thing I'll ask you, uh, the talking about something that was designed to hold back the worst of, um, I mean, the worst motivations by big business that has mm -hmm. now become disastrously big and evil themselves is unions. Um, I mean, with st the standpoint right now, I mean, the teachers union, that was a big, I mean, they were the one that were the ones that were pretty much driving COVID policy. We know that right. now that the power, yeah. the power 
uh, that is is wielded by them, the money that is wielded, they 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 steal from non-union members. Um, mm-hmm. They are obviously completely embedded inside of government. Well, they're one and the same. So let me ask you about this as as briefly as you can put it down. The pros and cons of unions. There was a there was a time where they were necessary. They have now become the big wigs. Are they still necessary now? And if they are, how do they need to be chopped down and restrained? Oh, that's a good one. Um, okay, well let's let's do the pros and cons of unions. Well, well, the back of my mind is thinking about how do we get rid of them and all that kind of stuff. So, um, just just some some real quick research. Um, and I have to say that this is looking at unions from the from the workers standpoint. Um, some of the pros are higher wages, safety protections, job security, a sense of community, promoting equality, and protection from unfair dismissal. Um, I can't really argue with any of that, except that from the employee standpoint, the pros of being in a union basically are you can't ever be fired. Yeah. You may have higher wages. Um, yeah. Okay. So the cons of union, the disadvantages of unions, um, just decreased flexibility, adversarial workplace relations, union dues, potential for corruption. I think that should be number one. Yeah. Uh, puts a break on the economy and it's higher costs for employers. Um, I think that, I think really what we have to do is we've really got to remember where the unions, where the idea of the unions came from. Unions are just a modern representation of the old um, uh, guild societies from um, um, way back probably 10 or 12 or 13 centuries ago in Europe. And and there may have been guilds also in other countries, but a guild was a, a form of class, uh, class stratification. It was a way of keeping outsiders away from um, specialized, uh, how can I say this, specialized trade knowledge. Mm-hmm. So back in the back in the day when we had trades like carpenters or masons or and I and I know that we still have those today but those are some of the early trades they didn't want their their best knowledge being leaked around where just anybody could pick it up and use it. Right. So these these guilds were embedded in part of our culture and society from very very olden days and um if especially in old Europe, if you were, for example, if you were born into a, a family of dairy farmers, that was also a guild. The, every dairy farmer was a member of their own guild. They had, you know, in their town, in their community, they would have the guild of, I'm, I'm making this up, but dairy farmers could have been any kind of um, labor type of work. And um, once you were a member of that guild, you got special dispensation, right? Um, you you couldn't be kicked out. Once you were a member, you were born into the guild. Um, it was a way of regulating, regulating an economy 
without having to have the king or the monarch come sweeping through and telling everybody how to do their business. Mm -hmm. But it was also a way for that guild to have some kind of, dare I say, monopoly power over certain types of um, certain types of forms of labor where if if the monarch wanted something built, he had to go to the guild and say, I need to have this built. But he couldn't go to the guild in the next town because then the guild in his town would start rising up and and you know it's pitchforks and torches again. So the old idea of of the guilds kind of trickles through time until it shows back up in America in the late um, late 1700s. So, you know, it's not like the unions are a new idea, um, but when they really became powerful in the 1930s was with the auto unions, right? Mm -hmm. So it's just another way for employees to get together to hamstring an employer and take some of the power that the employer has for themselves. Does that make sense? It, you know, it does. And obviously, that, that that on the face of it, you can see that's what, what the case that's is. That's exactly what they're for. Look at what the um, National Education Association, the giant teachers union, did during COVID. They basically, the teachers basically said, we're not going to go in and teach, so we're going to have classes online. We should have never listened to those SOBs. Well, the other thing, Robin, is that you have this situation where, like for example, when uh, when there was the was the uh, in the 1980s when President Reagan fired all the air traffic controllers, that whole uni- right. that union was going on strike, and they thought they're yep. going to have the upper hand, and he said, "Fine, fire them all. Let's just hire people who are non non union." The problem here is that you you start seeing that even when uh, when their their demands are not being met, what is the the recourse for a for them when the business says, well, we won't use union work, and we'll just you know help wanted anybody who wants to come. Uh, they're, they're usually um, I see a lot of a lot of hem and hawing about that too, and that's usually when uh, you know people start getting knocked off, and there are there's like physical and. Uh, encounters there, it really starts becoming more like gang warfare. Because I would yep. think if I if I were if I were getting ha- hassled by by unions, I would I would just start I would demand I would I work with nobody. That's that's part of one because I just do, I wouldn't want to deal with a headache. It seems like a headache these days more than anything. Well, how do you think the unions got started in the in the auto worker industry anyway? They were armed gangs going around to workers' homes, threatening them bodily harm if they didn't join the union. And the reason I know this is because that's what happened to my dad. So personal story, you know, he's he's part of he was uh, he was a worker at the Packard Motor Company, Packard Motor Car Company. And when the workers wanted to unionize, there was a large portion of the workers that said, no, we don't want to unionize. That's just going to hurt the company. And so literally gangs with bats would show up at people's homes late at night, threatening to do bodily harm if they did not vote yes for the union. See, see here, this is when it comes down to when we first learned what is a union when I was in, in school, all the, the basic definition, it's a collective bargaining 
uh, core, uh, you know, uh, group. They're going to go there and they're going to represent a group of workers and they're going to try to get the best rates, the best wages, the best holiday time, all that, whatever. And I said, oh, that's nice. Somebody advocating in a, in a, in a you know, legal sense for a group of laborers who might be specially skilled or anything like that. That sounds like it's good enough. But then you start getting into the bat wielding and then you start getting into the COVID policies. You're, the unions are so big that they're able to shut down entire countries. There has to be a, ton, a threshold that cannot be call, uh, uh, crossed, but I'm not expecting you to solve the whole world's problems, Robin. I just wanted to talk a little bit about it all. Um, well, I think I think the, the the key word in the phrase that you're, you you used of collective bargaining is collective. Yeah, I it's know. It's a communist organization, Frank. Those never turn out well. <laughs> Whole bun- it sounds like a bunch of communist gobbledygook. Uh, sounds like a bunch of damn communists to me. <laughs> okay, so then here's how we're going to end the show tonight. Um, because I want to start getting Thanksgiving E uh, soon, and we're going to start tonight. And I want to start with best compliment you were ever paid. I have a great thread here I'm going to read once we depart in just a couple of seconds. And I want to start with you, Robin. What is the greatest compliment you were ever paid? Um. The first greatest compliment I was ever paid was, thank you, mom, you're the best. (laughs) And that one didn't come until that child hit 40. Wow. Yeah. And so that was a, that was a, a a lifetime. That was a thank you for a lifetime then at that that, point. Well, or half a lifetime. That's right. Um, The second best, the second time I got the best compliment was, thank you, Dr. McCutcheon. Thank you for being my teacher. And that one came from a student 10 years after he graduated. Wow. And so I guess that... It took him a decade to figure out what I had been trying to teach him when he was a junior. So 10 years beyond that. And and to to know. he He made a special point to reach out and email me and say... I finally understand what you were trying to teach way back in 2012. Yeah. That's that's something else right there to know a decade later. Uh, something strikes you, you have an aha moment, and there is no doubt about who you have to thank for that. That's, that uh-huh. is wonderful. And I, Everything clicked. I, uh, I appreciate this, uh, Dr. McCutcheon, so much, and I would like to just remind you that it is Brandy Ball's season. I still yes, have is. your PDF here. Uh, Yay. So I'm going to re-share this. I'm going to share it all around, um, everything here, and I, I, I hope that you... You make them this year. I'm gonna I'm gonna give this passes off to Lauren and my sister-in-law, and hopefully I can I can finally taste this because we we have not done it yet. Last year well, I, ex- I I experimented I, with eggnog. I, I'm either gonna make the brandy balls or I'm just gonna buy the brandy. I haven't decided which. <laughs> oh, you know what? Well, just <laughs> one way or another, just start with the brandy because if you don't make the balls, you can always just have a cocktail. That's right. All right. Well, thank you so much for everything, Robin, and we'll talk oh, soon. Link sync. Linksync.com, that's in the description of the episode. I hope people go and reach out to you and become friends. Thank you so much, Frank. Thank you for inviting me back. And I I wish your family a very happy Thanksgiving and a very Merry Christmas. And do me one little teeny tiny favor and give that little girl of yours a great big hug and a kiss. 
remember that at some point she's going to say, thank you, Dad. You're the best. <laughs> oh, you, you. Well, thank you so much for that. I love uh, you, Frank. I you love you, too. Care. I love you, too. And if, happy Thanksgiving. Send the best to your husband, and, and we will talk soon. But we'll talk before Christmas, no doubt about it. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Good night. Okay. Robin McCutcheon gonna trying to make me break down like a, like a little girl over here. That's what she's trying to do. You can't mention Aurora like that and expect me to just have a, a the ability to breathe. <laughs> oh, that girl. I woke up this morning. I'm not going to be able to say this. Uh, I woke up this morning. You know, you do things, you try things in life. I have put my life into building this show into building into building the skills that go behind every show i have put my life into it and just it's just the heart spilled right into it and i love it so much and a week like this week is very challenging it's very challenging i'm very grateful to matt and matt at pilled.net for offering a, a a a partnership with them which is so heavily favored for the the creator and is it, it is so kind and it's non-restrictive and it's month to month so if anything ever goes just things just don't work out it, it's not like i'm bound for a year there's like a 25 year you know uh, slave ass contract with a a sunset clause I'm so happy for what what they have uh, done for this show. What does this all mean? You'll see. I'm so happy for what they've done for this show in just the last few years alone, giving the network a place to have a really open-ended, responsive uh, mechanism to be developed and to actually be right there on our our home base on the internet that's quite frankly tv so even before this week um the the team at pilled was just so very nice to us and so um they cater to us so well as do they with all of the people that, wor that work with alongside of them but this week was very very and still is very challenging for me because i'm a people pleaser it's one of my flaws. It's also one of my strengths. I think it, it, it just keeps me very compassionate, and I want to try to find something that everybody enjoys. And I knew that this was going to be a, this was going to be rough for some people at least. And some people, I think, crossed the line with how vicious and cold they were. But I understood that this was going to be a little rough just trying something to see how you can shake something up and, and, and expand the operation and, and do something that you can, you know, whatever. But I knew it was going to be a, a little bit of a challenge, especially uh, emotionally, because I just, I want people happy. But I also want to take some risks here and there, see how they pan out, readjust, plot a new course. I just want to stay on the journey. And it's been, uh, it's been a challenging week. And I went to bed the last two nights with knots. My stomach in knots. It's still in knots right now. But when I woke up this morning... <clears throat> and, you know, Aurora wakes me up. 
it was uh it was all right everything was all right so we're gonna take a little bit of break when we come back <laughs> your your greatest fucking compliments you can shove them right up your ass all, every last one of you <laughs> this left right thing is nonsense uh, left right is just a uh, these are uh, like horse blinkers you know you put blinkers on a horse to make it look down the road that's what left and right means is to control people's thinking some you put in the left packet some you put in the right packet but the truth, as you just mentioned, the truth is that the capitalists and the communists are hand in hand, the allies, they're united. From before 1917, uh, capitalism has uh, built up the communism uh, for one reason or another, which we might want to get into. It is a conspiracy. I think you accepted that before I did. I, I, I denied the conspiracy for years until the weight of evidence just made me accept it. Uh, academics are a little slow on these things. Uh, <laughs> So we, we uh, I will agree. Like you. We need uh, like what you, you said to today, I will accept a capitalist, communist, international conspiracy. There is no question about it. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret society, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. For we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covet means for expanding its sphere of influence on infiltration instead of invasion, on subversion instead of elections, on intimidation instead of free choice. It is a system which has conscripted vast human and material resources into the building of a tightly knit, highly efficient machine that combines military, diplomatic, intelligence, economic, scientific, and political operations. Its preparations are concealed, not published. Its mistakes are buried, not headlined. Its dissenters are silenced, not praised. No expenditure is questioned, no rumor is printed, no secret is revealed. That is why the Athenian lawmaker Solon decreed it a crime for any citizen to shrink from controversy. But I am asking your help in the tremendous task of informing and alerting the American people. Confident that with your help, man will be what he was born to be, free and independent. For those of you, I, I, um, I'll tell you, I can't. It's, it's like what Steve Irwin said. You know, I got this up over here. Um, no, you know, Robin sent me on a little path where it got me all misty-eyed thinking about my, my daughter. 
but it reminds me about Steve Irwin, and this is one of those things. It's Steve Irwin Day today, and I love this man. I've loved him more and more over the years as I learn more about him. And and uh, this is a clip. I hope this is the right one. I hope it's loud enough. Let me see. Hold on a second. I couldn't really give a rip. Uh, that's not loud enough. I am the proudest father. I gotta tell you. Hold on a second. I gotta find a way to to get this louder. It's Steve Irwin on fatherhood. This is it. Oh, here it is. I saw this years and years ago, and I saved it. And and when I when Lauren was was uh, pregnant, and we learned that she's pregnant. I don't know how the hell that happened, but when we learned that she was pregnant, I went and I grabbed this because I wanted to I the first thing I wanted to do was watch it after Aurora was born because you know before before you have a kid it you just don't understand until and then I I saw this but even with without being a father at the time watching Steve Irwin talk about his his family was very powerful so I wanted to play this, and I did. Well, I think the first night back from my little, uh, <laughs> what was it, 48-hour paternity leave. It's like as soon as I got back home from the, uh, as soon as I got back home from the hospital, I started writing the next show. But, um, but take a listen to this. Take a listen to this, and it's Steve Irwin Day, so it all it all makes sense. I never, you know what, I never wanted to be a dad. I couldn't really give a rip. And now I am the proudest father, I gotta tell you. I thought you were gonna be a boy. I, I just, I, I can't dwell on her for too long or I start bawling my eyes out. When I go into the field, mate, I got a photo. I got a photo of me and my daughter and I can just sit there and just start crying, just looking at her. Who would have thought someone as ugly as me could bring into the world so something so beautiful, such a treasure? That's really, uh, that's what it is. That's really what it's like. Uh, at least for me. I can't think about it too long. Just can't. All right, so how the hell am I going to read through your greatest compliments? That's the real question. ha, ha, ha. How the hell am I going to do this? Well, I've, I guess I've done harder things on this show over the years. It's been, uh, but thank you so much. Thank you so much for being here. Let's see into our big thread. I think I have it up over. Oh, here we go. I asked you all. What is the greatest compliment anyone has ever paid you? Something that really struck you hard and you remember for the rest of your life. And then phone lines are on. It's 914-200-0269. We have about 20 minutes or so. We'll bleed over to about 9.05 or something like that because we didn't do our intermission until about 8.02. And I want to hear from a couple of you guys and gals. So what we're going to do is this. First one is from Zulu, minus six. Says, this is a tough question. As a cop, 
One of my cohorts thanked me for my work in DUI detection and enforcement. For an entire year, no one died in my city as a result of alcohol-related car crash. As a bassist, I opened for Kevin Fowler a couple of times. His, uh, his bass player, voted number one in that year's Austin Music Poll, called me a monster after our set was over. Oh, that feels, that feels great. I had quite a few great compliments back in the day after getting off of uh, getting off stage. I really, really want to do something special with that. Again, I really want to be proud of myself as a as a drummer again. But especially when it's a a compliment compliment coming from a peer, I mean that can that can stop your heart for a moment, hopefully, or else you're not going to enjoy the compliment for long. All right, let's see here. Let's take a call. Let's take a call from King Forty. Here we go. How are you doing, my man? Good. How you doing, man? So, greatest compliment. Yeah. Oh, here we go. Uh, I don't know. There's been quite a few, but I would say the most recent one that sticks out to me is "Damn, looks thick." <laughs> yeah, I, I was wait. I was waiting. I was I was waiting. I was waiting. You know that one. Yeah. Yeah. Remember I showed you that? And the text I got. Which? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From abroad. Yeah, <laughs> damn bro. That's that's the one that sticks out most recently. Um I guess that's a pretty good one, right? Right, right. Is it would you say that's the best one <laughs> the best one of your life? The best one you ever got paid, or just the best one recently? The first one that comes to mind, you know what I mean? Right. That's you know what? That's good enough for tonight. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I like, like it. it. Yeah. It sounded like she did too. So th- thank you for the <laughs> th- thank you for the call, King. <laughs> All right. Take it easy over there. Jeez. All right. Here we go from Unexpected Rodeo. Unexpected Rodeo says my favorite passage in the Bible is Galatians 5:22 to 23. A while back I posted on my social media that every day I aspire to achieve the goal of living out this verse. The, it goes like this. The fruit of the, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Against such things there are there is no law. During a long and difficult conversation about our children with my former husband, he said this in regards to my social media post. He said, you don't just aspire to be those things. You are that person every day, all the time. I see it, and I'm grateful for that. That was probably the greatest compliment I ever received, especially when we could consider him a hostile witness. Thank you, Frank, and all the cool Frankly kids. (laughs) That is pretty cool. I'm happy happy to read that. You know, it's, that's just something that you don't, um, it's, uh, you don't expect that from an ex. So good for you. All right. Here's another one we have from Blackberry Lemonade. It says, not me, not me, but my son, who was a junior in high school. They were picking kickball teams in gym class. My son was one of the captains. He picked all the kids nobody else would have picked first. They lost the game, but he made sure everyone on his team was having a good time as he cheered them on. 
The gym teacher pulled him aside after class and told him he has got to be the nicest kid in the entire school. That is a tremendous compliment. And yes, that does. That does trickle up to you. No doubt about it. You know how we were talking about last night, the North Koreans, they, they give generational sentences for real or perceived crimes against the state. Well, there's also generational blessings. And I think that generational blessings are so far more legitimate. I really do believe that. I do believe that. Now, obviously, you can use your free will to throw it all away, to, th to toss that, to spit in the face of that grace. But I do believe that that is something that can be passed down almost like it's DNA. SoCal Patriot 56. The greatest compliment I ever received was from my father the last time I saw him and went to visit him in the hospital. He knew that he was dying. It was very sto He was a very stoic man, a World War II hero. He never talked much, but when he did, it was always important. He charged me. Uh, he charged me with being sure I looked after my mother when he was gone, and then looking at me straight in my eyes, he said, "I'm so proud of you. Everything you've ever accomplished, you've accomplished on your own, without the help of anyone else." We then sat there in silence. Enough was said. I held his hand. All was forgiven. My father had come from a broken uh, had had come home broken from World War II. He wasn't able to be there emotionally in the ways a young girl might have needed in her younger years. In that moment, it didn't matter. I was healed. That's great. Very happy. Those are the types of stories of closure that um, obviously this that is a tr tremendous compliment, but there was so much more weight attached to it. And I love those stories of closure. Which, you know, a compliment can give you that. Uh, more often than you think because again it's valid it's validating it validates a lot of hard work in many cases uh it, it also can invalidate people who have said things about you with no other reason than just to just to harm you and to to alter the way you think about yourself and the world around you you know just a manipulative way it can be restorative. a compliment a well-paid meaningful compliment can be restorative validating and uh, and can can offer a lot of closure. The phone line is still on 914-200-0269. Trail says this is from Trail. I was once told that I know how to live life to the fullest by a very good friend. That is my favorite compliment. My second favorite is that I was told by another male friend that I was the father figure he needed at a certain time in his life, even though I wasn't much older than him. Others, I've been told I was a good listener, genuinely care when others are ta uh, when are taking uh, talking about themselves. On an intimate level, I hope it's not TMI, but that I'm a good lover as well. Jeez, there are children listening. No, I'm just kidding. The king just called in. I should have been apologizing about that. But then I think everybody, when everybody, whenever people out there hear King 40, you're on the air, you know, brace yourself, usually. <laughs> so no apologies here. You knew what you're getting yourself into. All right. Mojave Josh says the greatest compliment that I ever received came from my daughter just a little over a year ago. She was 10 at the time. While on one of our drives home after a camping trip, she said with love and admiration in her voice, Papa, I see a lot of guys that... I see a lot of guys 
that kind of wear the same type of hats and shorts and clothes, but I never see anyone who looks like you. I like that. I almost started crying. Oh. Oh, yeah, that'll do it. That'll do it. You know, it's just one of those things where uh, I learned very early on, and it also came along with some really good advice from some friends of mine who are farther down the road or some uh, friends of mine who are really far down the road that are grandparents and sometimes great-grandparents. And um, they just remind you, you are not going to be able to... I mean, it's, I mean you're going to know very soon that once they hit... Once they're able to crawl... You, you can't remote control them. This is a person who is going to have their own life, their own thoughts, their own mistakes, everything. And you've just got to set a really good foundation and you've got to preserve that trust that they can always come to you for things and they don't feel in any way, shape or form like they've been ostracized or burned and then all of a sudden they're on their own and everything is spiked spite and spitefulness well um i have contemplated that from the very get-go and i know there's going to be a lot of things that are going to make my stomach turn but you know setting a good example what did they say you want to you want to actually it was again because of uh steve Irwin day I put it on the our daily Instagram post. I wish I, I wish I posted something daily on Instagram. I'm so bad with it. I really am, but maybe we'll see. I can I can establish a really well coordinated social media team. Here is our here's Instagram post today, Steve Irwin. Happy Steve Irwin Day. And you have side by sides of Steve Irwin um, on the bottom. The bottom two, you see him feeding a crocodile and his now grown son feeding a crocodile just like his father used to. And on the top, you have Steve and his and his uh, daughter kissing his wife's belly because his son is you know going to be born. And then next to that is the modern day where his daughter, uh, I think her name is Bindi, his daughter is now pregnant with a with her husband and he's kissing her it's just wonderful it says be the type of man that you want your daughter to marry be the type of man you want your son to become and that is just that's incredible and i think that's what you're talking about with how the compliments get passed up by our first uh our one of our first uh, compliments i read before with the son and the the kickball the kickball team in in high school those blessings can be passed up. And it's probably the best way that you can influence their future without without ruining your chances at having any kind of an influence by trying to remote control them. What the hell am I? I you know, I just have to philosophize here because I'm still knee-deep in it. I've got a three-year-old. I don't know what it's like to have a four-year-old. I don't know what it's like to have a 14-year-old, obviously. So I'm just trying to pep myself up, give myself a pep talk, and stay as cool and collected as possible uh let's see jerez jono says one year during college i decided to wear the same pair of swim trunks for the entire summer break i thought showering with them on would keep them clean obviously well when i inevitably developed a rash 
on and around my junk, I went to see a dermatologist, a cute young doctor, maybe five years older than myself. Oh, damn. Damn. That's just... Couldn't have been the physical, you know? It couldn't have been the physical where you have to, where, you know, you, you're going for the physical and uh, you don't have a rash all over your junk. You actually look a little bit, um, I don't know, presentable. Anyway, he has this cute dermatologist chick checking out his, his rash-infested junk over here. Fast forward to the pharmacy where I picked up the prescription for my rash cream. It read John Cox, J-O-N-C-O-X. Cox is not my last name. Close, but um, off by a few letters. That was the greatest compliment I've ever received. You think that she she actually... You, wait, are you saying that your dermatologist intentionally shortened your name or altered your name just so that it could reflect the part of your body that she was examining that needs to be treated by this cream and that was that in some way a message that hey i see you boy you know is that like what what exactly i'm trying to understand this one how was that a compliment you still have a rash all over your 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 crotch Maybe the uh, maybe Jerez Jono will will get in touch with me and and elaborate a little bit. All right, here's another one. Uh, I, I just missed a call. Let's see if they call back. They only have a couple of minutes left. One more of these. One more of these, and then we're gonna go to our super chats. Crude IT guy says, one of my personal greatest compliments was when I was in junior high track. Coach T, who happened to be black, said to me, a skinny white kid, as I was uh, as I was working him, working with him, working as I was working with him on the long jump. So Coach T, he's black, and Crude IT guy is working with him on the long jump there for track. And Coach T says to Crude IT Guy, are you sure you're not black? With a giant grin on his face. <laughs> that is good. That's one of those disarming compliments slash jokes. He's like, oh, I'm in. I'm in the in crowd. So, um, so there you go. Thank you so much for that. And you are more than welcome to send in whatever you have. Now, I'm going to go through our Super Chats because I have one more compliment I want to play for you that I've been waiting to do this for a while now. Okay? But Car Guys New England says, Frank, one of the biggest compliments I've received was my father telling me how proud he was of me before he passed away from congestive heart failure. I'm glad he got to see all my blessings before he passed on. Jay, thank you for that. And I'm glad he did too. Jay Brits now says, Frank, thanks for having such awesome returning guests such as Dr. Robin. Uh, mm, yum, yum. Brandy balls. I know. I would really like to taste one this the, uh, this year. And Stostube, thank you for the blessing to kick it all off tonight. Let's take one call just to say that we did. Hello, who's this? Hey, Frank. It's Vinny. Hey, Vinny. How you doing? I'm doing great, man. You know, um, your show tonight... Uh, uh, Make, make, I feel pretty good after listening to uh, to what you put down tonight, man. I'm glad. I, I, God bless you and, and everybody that's on the chat. Um, shit's kind of tough right now all over, but you, you're doing a great job, and 
heartfelt heartfelt thanks for what you do brother well you know i i appreciate that and especially around this time of year i feel like we we have to dig down deep and we have to find our heart again i think we do that pretty good throughout the whole year but i um but this is this is one of those I, nights that i i just like doing this and i'm glad it, i'm glad it rubs off like that on you man because I, I was i was gonna say i don't know how you feel about it but i think uh we kind of we even when we're trying to just skirt around the way we're seeing the world these days, um, it gets like I, I, I don't know. I, I tend to lean way into the dark, and um, it's not healthy. Hey, I, I I wish I can say I'm much I'm much different than you, Vin. I wish I can say I'm much different. And when you when you handle the kind of material that we do every night. Um, the, the material, and, and I, I, I try to keep it varied so we don't have to, we don't have to have our nose in it all the time, but this stuff is pretty, pretty toxic. Oh, yeah. No, and, it's, 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 it's right there. And, um, uh, I, it, it's, uh, oh, I, I get online, I, I get talking, I get speechless, but, um, you take us into the dark, you take us into the light, brother. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you, yeah, thank man. you, Vinny, and ha- have a great Thanksgiving. If we don't talk before then, um, let's see here. I have another one over here. I have a couple from from the Gold Pills, and thank you so much, everybody, for the Gold Pills. It's wonderful to see them flowing in. It's it's right. It, it's the easy way to to send a super chat on top of quite frankly superchat.com. That's also a wonderful thing. That's always going to be there for you, and that could be you can leave messages overnight on quite frankly superchat.com and i'll read it the next day i'm also going to be testing i have to test out some voicemail options too because i want to start doing voicemail bits we've been talking about it and i just have to see which place gives us the best on that that end njsf thank you jsem thank you shaquille oatmeal (laughs) i haven't seen that chat oh man that's the first time i've seen that name that's a wonderful name so that must be one of the new arrivals on 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 uh, the Foxhole uh, stream because Shaquille Oatmeal is so hilarious. Hey, Frank, just wondering if anyone else is surprised Gavin Newscom cleaned his room uh, for Xi Jinping. Oh, Xi Jinping. Wait, wait. Xi Jinping. I saw Gavin Newsom fall down an entire flight of steps. He kind of skied down the steps. He wasn't, it didn't look like one of those bad, he held onto the railings, but he was skiing down the entire flight of steps as he was disembarking a plane. Um, anyway, Eric Allen says, love when Robin is on. So do I. I love her one or two um, visits a year. Sometimes it's more. Who knows? 2024, she might be on every other, every other month with the things that are going to be going on. Paulie 9363, keep that invisible hand to yourself, Frank. What did I say about invisible hand? I'm trying to get the reference. Anyway, I will, I'll keep it to myself. Dawn S. Says, I love when Dr. Robin comes on. I always learn so much. Much love, Frank. Thank you, C. Blanche. Says, I'm a late. Brew Bark says, I love when Robin comes on the show. C. Blanche, Secret Weapon, thanks Frank and Robin. Robin is always money. JSM, great show. Vesper says, family is what matters, Frank. Love you. Jesse James, independent media. Gotta support independent media. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if that is Jesse James from Dangerous Info, is that is that Jesse James from Dangerous Info? 
He's got his own show, too. He's been a fan of this show for a long time. Captain Flint, thank you so much, and Pam D. So I'm going to go and release the Scratch It now because I have one last thing to play for you. One last thing, and uh, and then here's the thing. A lot of you out there have never seen what we do in After Hours before. But since you are here, just stick around. I, you, some of you might have to go somewhere, but you can also just leave things on. We ha- It is Rabbit Hole Wednesday. And you do not have to leave anywhere. You don't have to go to another site. You can just stay right there. And when this thing goes off, Rabbit Hole Wednesday is going to pop on for all of our friends who are working on the back end of the of the network, Cody and Abe. Um, I have one thing that I curated for tonight for the After Hours programming is our good friend Grace, really graceful. I think she's I think she put together an hour long video of 100 things that. Wait, 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 hold on. Wait, wait. I I don't want to I don't want to screw this up. Give me one second. I want to get the cuz you'll see it tonight. It's one of the things that'll be it's a rabbit hole. It's one of those rabbit holes. Where is it? Anthony Sutton, no, that's for later. Come on. It's like 103 lessons they didn't tell you and they didn't teach you in school or I don't know. Oh, wait, wait. The most important lessons Americans were never taught. So that's part of Rabbit Hole Wednesday tonight from our, our really great friend, Really Graceful. You don't have to go anywhere, and you can just let it ro- roll, and uh, we have different themes, and we pick the playlists, and it's music-related, it's conspiracy-related, it's, it's all types of great stuff. Throwback shit. I think you're going to like it. But in the meantime, here is something that you probably haven't seen before unless you're a sports fan, a baseball fan. Back in 2016... Here is a moment when Ken Griffey Jr., who was one of the the greatest that ever played, made a heartfelt tribute to his teammate, Jay Buhner, who was the right fielder for the Seattle Mariners during the 90s. Jay Buhner in right, Ken Griffey in center field. Jay Buhner used to scare the hell out of me. He looked like a Viking, and he always killed the Yankees. When they came into Yankee Stadium, these two in the 90s, the early 90s, just really killed us. Jay Buhner was actually a Yankee farmhand. He came up through the Yankee system, and then he had a wonderful career out there in um, in Seattle. And he and Ken Griffey Jr. became really great friends. And this was on a night where um, I believe that Ken Griffey Jr. was inducted into the Hall of Fame. This was on 2016. And his tribute to his friend Jay Buhner, when he was just thanking people, Um, was really incredible. And you want to talk about greatest compliments. This is an amazing compliment. 2016, take a listen to this, and I will see you tomorrow, ladies and gentlemen, for our Thursday night show, which I think should be pretty epic if everything goes well. We have George Alexopoulos in studio, and we have Razor Fist coming on for the first time. It'll be a big culture dive tomorrow. Movies, comics, everything, history. I'm looking forward to it. So um, have a great night, and I will, I will see you tomorrow. I waited till last to talk about Jay. I'm not going to tell no stories. 
Uh, okay, maybe one. Uh, of all people that I would consider my brother from another mother, a guy who listens to country music, wears cowboy boots, big belt buckles. I got 17 speakers in a car, sweatsuits, rap music, two people that are so far apart on every level became really close. Now, I don't know if that's the pitching changes that we had and I went over to left, I mean right field and he came over, but there is no other person in, in this world other than my parents, that if, if something ever happened to me or my wife, that I would want to raise my kids. Wow. Wow. Catch you on the flip side. Quite frankly, is filmed before a live studio audience, and now our super chatters, new car guy, or car guys, New England, Jay Britt Stostube, and our wonderful friends across Pilled, uh, with all the gold pills and all that. Tomorrow's another day. Thank you for tonight and every night, my friends, and I will uh, talk to you soon. Thanks again to Robin McCutcheon, and um, I'm looking forward to Thursday. Stick around. After Hours is about to kick in on QuiteFrankly.tv. On Quite Frankly TV. Take him away. I'm going to go home and sleep with my wife.